Bridge to Well Decks. Time for a very special episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And this is a completely unique episode. I mean, we were so lucky to be able to present something at the convention in Las Vegas. And that's what we're sharing with you today. So this convention, which is held every August in Las Vegas, is produced by Creation Entertainment. So this was their 55-year mission tour, their 55th anniversary celebration of Star Trek. And we got to do a special live podcast in front of an audience. And we had so much fun with it that Steve had the wherewithal and the brains to figure out how to record it. So we are going to share this with you now. But Steve, what is it that we are about to share? Well, it isn't a regular episode of Enterprise Incidents. Instead, what we wanted to do was share one of the most important lessons that you've learned with us as we've gone on this journey. And so instead of talking about one episode, we talked about one theme that goes through a whole bunch of different episodes. And that theme came about because of the way that we've been doing Enterprise Incidents, which is treating Star Trek as a serialized show And one of the many big epiphanies that Steve and I had in doing Enterprise Incidents was just how well Star Trek actually works as a serialized show for many reasons. But first and foremost, because of the evolution and the history of our man, Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. And as we explore his character, we did use some clips from Star Trek, so you'll hear those as we go along. But I also want to warn you, there were a couple of moments where we used stills like a slideshow. And unfortunately, because this is an audio-only podcast, you won't see them. But I think you're going to get the idea of what we're talking about. You are going to get the idea. And one of the things that I loved about this, Steve, was the energy of of being in front of an actual audience doing an episode of Enterprise Incidents with you. That was so, so, so much fun. And we want to thank everyone at Creation Entertainment for allowing us to do this presentation, for allowing us to record it, to share it with all of you, all of our loyal listeners of Enterprise Incidents, which I now dub Enterprisers. If you are a fan (laughs) of Enterprise Incidents, you are an Enterpriser. So hashtag that. When you post about Enterprise Incidents on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. And so, without further ado, I take you back to mid-August at the Rio Hotel in Las Vegas, where Scott and I, for the first time, stepped in front of a live audience to present a live episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. Bridge to all decks. Do you hear that applause, ladies and gentlemen? Do you hear that applause? That is because this is a very, very, very special episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I am Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris, and my level is very hot. But that doesn't, now it's a little low, but that doesn't mean I'm not super excited to be here. First of all, because believe it or not, this is my first Star Trek convention since I was 12 years old. That's right. I've been a lifelong Star Trek fan, but I just never went out and did this thing, and I'm so, so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here. Now, I've been here many, many times. I've been going to Star Trek conventions since I was 11, like nonstop, but this is very, very special because this is the first time that I'm doing, that we are doing a live broadcast and recording of, of our podcast, Enterprise Incidents, with Scott and Steve, which can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. You can listen to the audio on YouTube. And just wanted to say, at the end of our presentation that you are about to see, we, w- we would like for you to be a part of this podcast by giving us feedback on our presentation, by asking us questions. So we encourage every one of you to join in on this very, very special podcast of Enterprise Incidents. And for those of you who don't know what Enterprise Incidents is, I got to tell you, I am so grateful to Steve Morris. I met him five years ago while I was recording an episode of his film podcast, The Cinephiles, which is a deep dive movie podcast he does with his partner, John Roca. They had me on to do Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And ever since then, Steve has been saying to me, we should do a Star Trek podcast. We should do a Star Trek podcast. But then... He finally won me over. Steve, how did you crack the code? Well, I mean, it's not like there are not a lot of podcasts that are exploring the original series. There are. 
And so what we kept thinking about was how can we bring something different to it? And it ended up happening really organically because the fact is, even though both of us have watched these episodes literally hundreds of times, for the last decades, we've watched them casually. You know, like it's late at night, my family went to bed, I sat down, maybe I had a video game on my iPad, and I put on Where No Man Has Gone Before, or Corbamite, or Mock Time, or something like that, and it just washed over me because I know the episodes by heart. But then this thing started to happen when we started watching for the show. All of a sudden, all these details, all these ideas, all these patterns started coming out. And those patterns, believe it or not, have changed the way we see this show that we have watched literally all our lives. And here's, here's the thing. So, so these days, television, it's all serialized. Like uh, a season of a series is one story, one complete arc. And if you don't watch episode one or two, forget about starting with episode eight because you will be completely lost. Now, as you know, the original Star Trek series was not like that. The original series was episodic. And that means they were standalone episodes so that you could show the episodes in production order or you could show them in air date order like they did, and it really wouldn't matter. And the good thing about everyone in this room is that you all know the difference between air date order and production order. Now, while the original series was, was episodic, standalone, the way we are covering our deep dive of the original series, first of all, of course, we are going episode by episode in production order because that is the way to go. That is also how you see the evolution of the series. But here is what makes Enterprise Incident special. We are looking at the original Star Trek as a serialized show. We are looking at it as a complete body of work where the actions of an earlier episode will affect the actions of a later episode. Just as an example, in The Enemy Within, when we see Kirk split into two because of the transporter malfunction, how did James T. Kirk feel when he saw a duplicate version of himself in what are little girls made of? And by opening up the series, by looking at it from a, from a serialized point of view, it has... It has made us see the original series in a completely different way, in a completely revealing way. And like Steve said, these episodes that we've watched literally, literally hundreds of times, we are seeing it in a whole new way, and we are discovering so many things about our favorite characters. And, and this is the thing, is that none of this would be any fun if it didn't actually work is the weird thing is that details that probably some screenwriter put in just to have a detail. I'm a screenwriter, and sometimes you just need to decide that, oh, that's someone's backstory. Those details are fitting together in an almost magical way. And one of the things we've learned, we've learned so, had so many discoveries about these characters, and we want to share just one of them with you today, and it is about our favorite character. This is who we want to talk about. The question, who is James T. Kirk? Now, all of you probably know the answer to that, because just like us, you probably love this guy. This was our hero. This is why we started watching Star Trek, and we thought we knew all about him. He is the confident, sometimes swaggering, strong, courageous guy who never quits, who always wins the battle and always gets the girl, and that's who I wanted to be. But it ends up, there's a lot more to this guy than we ever expected. Well, well, as we know, he didn't always get the girl. Sometimes he had to choose the fate of the universe <laughs> instead of the girl. But that is because that's what we love about our captain, by the way. But see, that's the thing. And Steve is right. So I always thought I knew who Captain Kirk was. I became a Star Trek fan because of Captain Kirk. So many people here in this room and elsewhere around this convention will say they got into Star Trek, whether it's the original series, Next Gen, DS9, or whatever, because it painted a positive depiction of the future, because it inspired them to become a scientist, an astronaut, a physicist, a doctor. And, and they loved the different shows for different reasons. But when I was six years old and I saw Mirror, Mirror, okay, I saw Mirror, Mirror, and that was the episode that did it for me. Interesting because it's an atypical episode because you're in the Mirror Universe the whole time, but that's why I became a fan. And one man can make a difference. That man for me was James T. Kirk. I thought I knew him, but it wasn't until we started doing our deep dive in the original series that I realized I didn't 
know him, and we are discovering so much about him. So and what we want to focus on right now is just one time in his life. We want to focus on who was Jim Kirk at Starfleet Academy. Now, we all know what the most defining event at Starfleet Academy was, the thing that put James T. Kirk on the map. Lieutenant, you are looking at the only Starfleet cadet who ever beat the no-win scenario. How? I reprogrammed the simulation so it was possible to rescue the ship. What? He cheated. I changed the conditions of the test. Got a commendation for original thinking. I don't like to lose. I don't like to lose. Boy, what a fitting comment for Kirk. I don't like to lose. Now, how many of you remember the moment when you were watching The Wrath of Khan for the very first time, probably in theaters, judging by many of you on June 4th, 1982, certainly that's where I was, and that I saw this moment when you think that they're stuck on the Genesis, on the Genesis planet, in the Genesis cave, rather, and he gets up and says, I don't like to lose. And he calls Spock. What a rousing moment. Everyone in that theater just went bonkers crazy. And I don't care how many times I watched Rathacon, I get to that moment and I still go, that's my guy. Of course, the person telling this story is a mature Captain Kirk, an experienced Captain Kirk. And the thing we were asking was, what was he like at Starfleet Academy? And I already revealed a little bit of a hint, but we kind of have seen him because it looks like that. Right? That's James T. Kirk at Starfleet Academy. That's the guy who beat the Kobayashi Maru. Or is it? Now, 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 the Kirk that we see in the Star Trek 2009 film. So when I went in to see Star Trek 2009, I just went like, wait a minute. Okay, all the other Star Trek shows that came out, I thought whether, whether they're great or they're not great, I'm always going to have the original series. That's always going to be the gold standard for me. That's, that's Star Trek to me. But now you're messing with my boys and Uhura. <laughs> so, so, but I thought Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, and definitely Carl Urban, they did, a, and, and uh, Zoe Saldana as Uhura. What a, what a great movie that is, Star Trek 2009. But a very different depiction of Kirk from the one that we knew. So we get to see, finally, after all these years, exactly what the Kobayashi Maru was like. Our ship's being hit. Shields at 60%. I understand. Or should we, I don't know, fire back? No. Of course not. What is this? What's going on? Armed photons. Prepare to fire on the Klingon warbirds. Yes, sir. Jim, their shields are still up. Are they? No. They're not. Fire on all enemy ships. One photon each you do. Let's not waste ammunition. Firing. <laughs> All ships destroyed, Captain. Begin rescue of the stranded crew. So, we've managed to eliminate all enemy ships. No one on board was injured, and the successful rescue of the Kobayashi Maru crew is underway. The apple. That apple. What a great touch, right? What a great touch. I mean, when in Rathacon, you know, Kirk gets up, calls Spock in the communicator. Kirk to Spock, it's two hours. Are you ready? Right on schedule, Admiral. Takes a bite of that apple. I don't like to lose. And here, what a great touch. J.J. Abrams and the screenwriters, uh, Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi, they did such a fantastic job in, in sort of like tying it into, like we've heard about the Kobayashi Maru, and now we're seeing a version of the Kobayashi Maru. But is it the version? And did this version of the Kobayashi Maru match the sort of uh, aftermath of how it impacted Captain Kirk, played by Shatner, in the prime timeline? And I remember when I went to see this movie, and I saw this, and I'm like, there he is. There's Jim Kirk. There's the, the swagger and the confidence and the sense of humor. It's all right there. And then, working on the show with Scott, started to realize that that wasn't who James T. Kirk was at all in Starfleet Academy. And you know how I know that? I know that because his best friend told us that in the very first episode. I'm getting a chance to read some of that long hair stuff you like. <laughs> hey man, I remember you back at the academy A stack of books with legs The first thing I ever heard from an upperclassman was Watch out for Lieutenant Kirk In his class, you either think or sink 
in his class who either think or sink. A stack of books with legs. So we've, we've recorded or we've posted uh, now 21 episodes of Enterprise Incidents that we would love for you to hear because we know you're really going to have your minds blown by all of the major discoveries, especially with regards to James T. Kirk. And throughout the course of the, uh, of the, of the episodes that we posted, and by the way, with 80 episodes of the original series, we've now posted 25% of them through Enterprise Incidents. And when we have come back on our conversations with the various episodes we've covered so far, Steve and I keep coming back to that comment, a stack of books with legs. That was a whole lot more than a throwaway line in the very first pilot that William Shatner shot as James R. Kirk. That line was telling. And in the episodes that followed, we are, we are hearing and seeing things that we are only now realizing were more than throwaway lines or just subtle hints at the, as to Kirk's past. These are lines and, and bits of information about Kirk's past that paint collectively a very different picture of who he is. So, but this is Lieutenant Kirk, right? This is a slightly older guy. Yes, he's a stack of books with legs. Yes, in his class, you either think or sink. But what about Cadet Kirk? That guy's a lot younger. Maybe that guy was a lot more like Chris Pine. Nope. Wrong. He's not. And you know how we know that? We know that because Kirk told us that himself. What's the matter, Bones? You getting a persecution complex? Well, yeah, I'm beginning to feel a little bit picked on, if that's what you mean. I know the feeling very well. I had it at the academy. An upperclassman there. One practical joke after another and always on me. My own personal devil. A guy by the name of Finnegan. And you being the very serious young... Serious? I'll make a confession, Bones. I was absolutely grim, which delighted <laughs> Finnegan no end. Absolutely grim. So we go from hearing Gary Mitchell tell us that Captain Kirk was a stack of books with legs. And, and by the way, in the rest of that clip, what does Kirk say in response? He goes, I wasn't that bad, was I? And yes, he, he was that bad. So now, here in Shoreleaf which is a deuce episode that we covered on Enterprise Incidents. Uh, that's also going to blow your mind. But in this moment, we find out not only, not only was he just buried in books and always studying and kind of a, a party pooper, just, you know, always just reading and studying, but James T. Kirk was bullied. That's right. He had a bully. And not only did he have a bully, but according to what we learned in Shore Leave, he never stood up to the bully. Now, could you imagine the Kelvin timeline, Kirk not standing up to a bully? In fact, we see him stand up all the time, maybe far too much. But the prime timeline, Kirk doesn't. He doesn't stand up to the bully. So here's what I want you to, this is what we're kind of doing on the podcast. I want you to speculate with us just for a moment. Let's assume for the moment that Kelvin timeline, Kirk, and prime timeline, Shatner, Kirk, are genetically exactly the same, same person. Well, that means we're into a nature versus nurture issue, right? It means that something within their experiences led them to become di very different people. Well, both of them, what we've learned, were formed by tragedy. For Kelvin Timeline Kirk, it was the tragedy of his father dying heroically almost at the moment that he was born. So he grew up without a dad, and that led him to be aggressive. He had a chip on his shoulder. He was overconfident and sometimes self-destructive. But Shatner's Kirk didn't have that experience. He had a different experience. But he, too, is the child of trauma. Kodos is dead. Is he? Is anyone sure? A body burned beyond recognition? The authorities closed the book on that case years ago. Then let's reopen it. Jim... 4,000 people were butchered. Kodos is dead. I'm satisfied with that. Well, I'm not. I remember him. That voice. A bloody thing he did. Children watching their parents die. Whole families destroyed. Over 4,000 people. They died quickly, without pain. 
but they died. And you think Jem suspects he's Kodo? He'd better. There were nine eyewitnesses who survived the massacre who had actually seen Kodos with their own eyes. Jim Kirk was one of them. Jim Kirk was one of them. Okay, so let's, let's do the math here. So in the second season episode, The Deadly Years, Wayne Kirk is aging and he's being court-martialed to they're trying to take his command away so Stalker can uh, you know, go to a star base and go through the neutral zone, you know, really be a horse's ass. So Kirk says, I'm 34 years old. 34 years old. So the star date for the deadly years started with a three. So that meant that the, that was when the Enterprise was in its third year of its five-year mission. The first number of the star date indicates the year that they are out in space. So throughout the three years of the original series, they got through five years of its mission. So that meant that when the star date for The Conscience of the King started with a two, that meant that Kirk was 33 years old in this episode, and that meant the massacre of 4,000 colonists on Tarsus IV happened when Kirk was 13 years old. 13 years old, James Kirk witnessed the massacre of 4,000 colonists to save 4,000 other colonists. And as Spock points out in this episode, The Conscience of the King, which I have to say is a brilliant episode. It is an episode that has absolutely gotten better with age. It is my second favorite personal episode of Star Trek of them all. And you'll have to listen to the episode on this, on Enterprise Incidents, to find out why. But we have established that, that the trauma that he witnessed, that he experienced as a 13-year-old, had massive repercussions on the rest of his life and career. And even in this episode, because in this moment that we see when Kirk is talking to uh, Dr. Tom Latham, and he says, Codus is dead. I'm satisfied with that. Move on. But that's not all, is it? No, he also it, he denies it at first. And then from that point forward in the episode, he behaves in a way that he almost never does throughout the series. He cuts out Spock and McCoy. He's indecisive. He's emotional. And the reason is, is because he was dealing with deep trauma from his childhood. So now does it surprise you that the Kirk who showed up at Starfleet Academy was so serious he described himself as absolutely grim? What we've started to think about was the experience with Kodos the Executioner is the driving force that made him decide that he wanted to be in a position where he could stop something like that from ever happening again. And that is what caused him to be a stack of books with legs. That is why he was absolutely grim. And we have evidence of how much he studied, of how much Kirk actually knew. And in fact, some of that evidence is revealed in the very first time we see him in the very first episode of Star Trek that he appears in. I'll have you checkmated your next move. <laughs> have I ever mentioned you play a very irritating game of chess, Mr. Spock? Irritating? Ah, yes. One of your Earth emotions. Certain you don't know what irritation is? Okay, let me tell you how I always thought about this scene. This is the way I always thought about it. Spock plays logic. Kirk plays human instinct and gut. And he uses his human instinct and gut to beat Spock. But we studied this scene. We watched every reaction shot. I don't think that's what's going on. I think Kirk has set Spock up. I think he is doing what he does throughout the series, which is he plays weaker than he is. He manipulates people. He gets them to play into his game. So how's that possible? In order to manipulate Spock, he has to know what Spock is going to play. That means he has to understand Spock's logical game. And there's only one way he could have done that. He had to study. One of those books, when he was a stack of books with legs, was a book on chess. And he mastered it. It's not just instinct. It's study. That's how Kirk got where he was. Kirk studied a lot. And when we, are, when we see the scene, by the way, just to digress here, what we just saw was the very first thing, the very first moment 
of William Shatner as James R. Kirk in the very first pilot that he filmed, which was, of course, Where No Man Has Gone Before. And I just got to say, boy, did we luck out that Jeffrey Hunter did not want to play Captain Christopher Pike. We lucked out with William Shatner. William Shatner, when you watch Where No Man Has Gone Before, you know, the, there's, there's a lot about that episode. Star Trek isn't quite there yet. The uniforms are different. Spock makeup is different. McCoy isn't even there. We have Dr. Piper. But from act one, scene one of his very, very first episode, William Shatner had Kirk down. The way he played Kirk in this moment is the way he played him all the way through the end, through Star Trek Generations. That confidence, that confidence that he has with Picard when he's saying, I, you know, I was saving the galaxy while your grandparents were in diapers. That's the Kirk we just saw right here. Confident, brash. But he is, he is very, very smart. Very smart where he was always kind of like, like, he, like Steve said, he, he was drawing Spock in, just like he drew Balok in in the Corbomite maneuver. And just, he was so, so studied, and st reading so much that in Space Seed, at the end of Space Seed, when Kirk offers Khan and his people the chance to start a new world, and Khan's response to him is, have you ever read Milton, Captain? Have you ever read Milton? I didn't. I'm guessing a lot of you haven't. But James Kirk did because he knew exactly what Khan was talking about. He knew exactly out of that massive, massive poem from Milton. He knew exactly what Khan was referring to. Scotty didn't even know and had to ask Captain Kirk. And his response is, the, the statement that Lucifer made when he fell into the pit, it is better to rule, to reign in hell than it is to serve in heaven. How did how did James Kirk knew that? Because he read a lot. What did Gary Mitchell say? He said, I'm starting to read all that long hair stuff you like. Long hair stuff like Milton. Kirk was reading Milton. And as soon as we had this discovery, then other things started to fall into place. Things we had never, ever noticed before. Things that show us just what an expert, what an incredible studier Captain Kirk was. I personally programmed the computer for chess months ago. I gave the machine an understanding of the game equal to my own. The computer cannot make an error. And assuming that I do not either, the best that could normally be hoped for would be stalemate after stalemate. And yet I beat the machine five times. Someone, either accidentally or deliberately, adjusted the programming. If what you suggest had been done, it would be beyond the capabilities of most men. Is that true? Affirmative. What man aboard ship would it not be beyond? The captain, myself, and the records officer. Now, I love the episode Court Martial, and every time I would see this scene, what's the big reveal in the scene? Well, the big reveal is that Finney is alive and that he programmed the computer to fake his own death. And so I didn't even pay attention to the beginning of that line where Spock puts the one other person as good as computers as he is, as Captain Kirk. And remember the beginning of the episode, the prosecuting attorney asks Spock, do you know, uh, are you an expert in computers? He says, I know all about them. So does Captain Kirk. So does Captain Kirk. And Captain Kirk knows as much about Spock because they're, they're equals. And, and because Kirk has that, that human instinct, in some, ways, in some ways, he is smarter than Spock. And that's why he's able to beat Spock at chess. So here we are establishing that Kirk's knowledge of computers, his knowledge of computers is equal to that of Spock's. And Spock has said, I know all about them, which means that James Kirk also knows all about computers. And that is why James Kirk was able to reprogram the computer of the Kobayashi Maru so it was possible to save the ship. Thank you. And the thing is, I don't know how many, I bet there are a few people out here who program computers, who work on computers. You can't just guess how to do it. You can't gut your way into a programming language. You have to study. You have to study. And this is the thing that started to change in the way we saw Kirk. In my brain, it was always this brilliant human mind 
And there was this extraordinary Vulcan mind. And yes, there are some things in terms of calculating that Captain Kirk could never keep up with Spock on. That's true. But what we began to think is that, no, these are actually two extraordinary minds. And in fact, there's even times where Kirk is ahead of Mr. Spock. What would happen if another universe, say a minus universe, came into contact with a positive universe? Unquestionably, a warp. A distortion of physical laws on an immense scale. Which is what we've been experiencing. The point where they come into contact, couldn't that be described as a whole? Indeed. What is your analysis of the mental state of Lazarus? Difficult, Captain. One moment paranoid, the next calm, mild, rational. Almost as if he were two men. Yes, two men. Different, but identical. And a hole in the universe. No, not a hole. A door. A door. That, that moment, just watching that moment, without knowing everything that came before or after it in that episode. <laughs> it's a moment like this that makes me go, this is why I love Star Trek. Watching these two, these two brilliant minds figure it all out. Of course, the episode is the alternative factor, which I think we can all agree, when it comes to the first season of the original series, the alternative factor is probably the low point of it. But that moment is not only a high point of that episode, safe to say, easy to say, it is a high point in the revelation, in the, the discovery of just how equal and how brilliant each of them are and, and the different things that they bring to the table because this is a great example of a scene where Kirk was a little bit ahead of Spock. See, that's not a scene of the captain talking to a science officer who's an expert on astrophysics. That's a scene of two experts. So now we go back. Let's go back to Starfleet Academy. And we see that kid with a stack of books with legs, and we know that he has computer programming books, and he studied chess and Milton, and he studied astrophysics. I want you to picture this person in your mind. This is a guy who is so serious he describes himself as absolutely grim, who's bullied. And not only is he bullied, but he never stands up to his bully. Can you picture this guy? Is he the same as you've always pictured, Captain Kirk? Okay, hold that thought. Because if, they, if, we, if we're not making enough of an argument, let's, let's throw another, another example to the table. Okay, let's look at the fact that after the battle between the Enterprise and the Gorn ship on Cestus III, Kirk is steadfast in, in pursuing the Gorn ship and destroying it. Much, he's much more aggressive than it was when he was pursuing the Romulans in Balance of Terror, but they broke a treaty. It was a different story. But here you have Kirk and the Gorn on this asteroid at the hands of the Metrons, who are saying the loser is going to have their ship destroyed. The winner can just go on their merry little way. Kirk is alone on this asteroid with the Gorn. He is no match for the Gorn physically. And his only chance at victory comes at his intelligence. How the heck did he know how to build a cannon out of the native elements to defeat his adversary? And after all of that, just beaten and exhausted, he shows compassion and mercy. Who doesn't love this guy? I'm, I'm telling you. But how did he know how to build that cannon? How did he know, Steve? He had another book, and it was on chemistry. So Scott and I are, let's face it, nerds. And we've been watching this guy since we were kids. And he was always our hero. This is who we aspired to be. And we saw him as someone so different from us. And now we're starting to see him in a very different way. I absolutely wanted to be James T. Kirk when I was a kid, okay? I looked at his confidence. He always said and did the right thing. When he didn't do the right thing, he learned from his mistakes. 
to do the right thing. That happens in a lot of the Gene Kuhn written episodes, which is why he was the best writer. But when I was in like middle school and high school and I started, I started dating, you know how many times I used the line, worlds may change, galaxies disintegrate, but a woman always remains a woman? Do you know how many times I've used that line? And guess what? It worked a lot. But I, I, I wanted to be this guy, but I felt like it was something I always aspired to. And it's only while recording and doing these episodes of Enterprise Incidents that we had the biggest epiphany of all. And that's right. That's what we're saying. We are announcing on this day officially that we believe that James Tiberius Kirk was a nerd. He's a nerd. Here, all this time, like, I just thought he was, like, even, I have to say, 52-year-old, middle-aged man, and I still aspire to be this guy. And what I realized, what we realized while recording, while, while doing these episodes of Enterprise Incidents, that I was like him all along. I was like him all along. I was a nerd all this time. And, well, what do you know? Captain Kirk was a nerd too. But there was a moment that defined Captain Kirk. And there was a, there was a moment that, that uh, divided Kirk from who he was, from who he became to be. So I've always thought of Kobayashi Maru as just a fantastic example of Kirk being Kirk. But that's not what I think anymore. Now I think that the Kobayashi Maru is the moment that Kirk became Kirk. It's the moment that he decided to be who he was capable of being. I think that deep down as he studied, he knew that he had this inside him. He knew that he could be this kind of person and he decided to let go of all the fear, all the other stuff that was holding him down and be the person he knew that he could be to become the Kirk that we love. And that moment, like the ability to reprogram a, a Starfleet computer so that you can save the ship, I mean, that's got to give you a tremendous amount of confidence. And it's that kind of confidence that Kirk displayed when he pulled off the Corbomite maneuver. That took balls. And by the way, the Corbomite maneuver was only the, the, it was the first episode that was shot when Star Trek went to regular series. And already we are seeing the fruits of that confidence that he displayed so early on when he, when he saved the ship in the Kobayashi Maru. And so I always wanted to be Kirk. I always wanted to be this person who was just, had it all in him. He was ready. He was born to lead. It was all part of him. And now I've discovered that he earned it. And what's crazy about it is that's even more heroic to me. That's even more admirable. Not the person who just can do it all naturally, but the person who fought and worked and was absolutely grim in his determination to be what he was capable of being. You know, we, we've been talking about how there, there, are some, there are some very obvious differences in the Prime Kirk and the Kelvin Kirk. And of course, that's because when the Romulan ship showed up in the past and killed killed James Kirk's father, George Kirk, that sort of sent him off on a completely different uh, destiny, and which is why Chris Pine's Kirk was able to fight off a bunch of guys at a bar at the same time that in the Prime Universe, our James Kirk, Shatner, had his head buried in books and was studying and reading everything he could possibly read. And so this is just one of the crazy discoveries we've had while we've been doing this podcast. And if you would like to hear some of the other things we found out about this series we thought we knew so well, well, you're going to have to subscribe to Enterprise Incidents. Now, this is not just a shameless plug because really, like... No, we I, have shame. We're not, no shame here at all because really, I mean, listen, I, I, I've seen many of you for many times over these years here in Vegas and even back in the 90s when I was working for Creation full-time, I'm a lifelong lifelong Star Trek fan, uh, the original series, and yes, Captain Kirk has informed my life in so many ways and given me so much joy. And just when I thought I've experienced every bit of joy I could possibly experience 
from Star Trek, I have gotten so much out of, of doing Enterprise Incidents. So many discoveries, so many revelations, and so many people who've been listening and have been you know, writing to us on our Facebook page, which is Enterprise Incidents, or, or writing reviews on Apple Podcasts, are saying, I love your podcast. Like, you are, you are presenting Star Trek in a, with a completely fresh set of eyes. And yes, the, we're only 20 episodes in. We still have 60 episodes to go to discover more about Kirk. But like Steve said, we're discovering so much about everyone. We're discovering stuff about Sulu. We're definitely discovering a lot about Spock, and we're definitely discovering a lot about McCoy. But we are also, we also want to celebrate the 55th anniversary of the show that started it all in the best possible way. So yes, we're putting in all kinds of production information, casting, how the story evolved from outline to final draft teleplay, the contributions not just of Gene Roddenberry, but of Robert H. Justman, of Gene Kuhn, and definitely of Dorothy Fontana. Those are the four. They are the fab four of Star Trek. And also, the other thing is this. We started doing this in March. So when we started doing our podcast, we uh, had already been through a whole lot with not only the pandemic, but a whole lot of other things. I don't want to get political, but it's been a rough couple of years. And the current events, in many ways, the way they tie back to the events in the 60s, have made Star Trek just as relevant and as potent and resonate just as deep as it ever, ever did. Just as an example, I'm going to say an episode that, you know, I wouldn't say it was one of my favorites. I like it, but it's not in my top 10. It's not in my top 25. Miri, have you tried watching Miri now? It's going to mean something very, very different. And I don't just mean bonk, bonk on the head. Okay, Miri resonated very, very deep. And there was so much in the discussion that we had about that episode that blew my mind. And I thought I knew everything there was to know about the original series. So that's what we wanted to tell you. But we'd actually like to bring you into the conversation. We'd like to hear if you have questions, either comments on our friend the nerd up there, or if you have questions about the podcast or just, you know, talk some Star Trek. I just want to talk some Star Trek. So so first of all, the first question is this. Uh, How many of you are with us in our presentation that Kirk is a nerd. That's a lot of hands. All right. <laughs> Make sure you uh, <laughs> spread that around on social media. Does anybody have any comments that so, they would like so to share? Scott, I'm going to head out there so I, okay, they can yes. use the bike. Uh, yes, we have, we have a comment right here. It's David. And just, uh, just a question. Like I said, um, about Kirk, I mean, as you know, he, like I said, he's a nerd. But and as we've seen in the series, he's also a great fighter. So, like, our prime Kirk, well, except prime Kirk, they both are really. But prime Kirk, like, I guess for the Kelvin Kirk as well, do, was Kirk... Do you think Kirk was a great fire? Was a great fire like before he entered the academy, or did you just learn to, or did just the Starfleet Academy teach him how to fight really good? Like, how do you suspect he became such a good fire? Like, so the academy, or was he already a great fire even before the academy? That's a great question. Where did he learn how to fight? <laughs> he did fight pretty good. I'm just gonna say that 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 was that was training in the academy. So I have very strong opinions about this. I've done martial arts for about 25 years, and so I hate it when people are great fighters innately. So I'm going to stick with the nerd stuff. He trained. That's how you learn to be a great fighter. That's a really great question. We have a question right over here. Actually, a comment. Uh, Linda is my name. My takeaway on both Prime and Kelvin Kirk is that man was utterly dedicated to saving lives, period. And if that meant putting himself at risk, that's okay. That was one of the biggest takeaways I have had for, since I first saw Captain Kirk 50 years ago. But that's what impressed me. That's absolutely true. Look, I mean, in Balance of Terror, you know, he says uh, both uh, these outposts and the ship are are considered expendable because, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And what he did, his actions, hold that thought, his actions in the Citizen Kane of Star Trek episodes, sitting on the edge of forever, he would have followed, he could have followed his heart, but he did he did what was right. 
He did the right thing for the sake of, of, of basically the universe because of the butterfly effect. He sacrificed the love of his life, his soulmate, his kindred spirit. And here's an, a character, Edith Keeler, who showed up uh, in the middle of the second act. And their chemistry was so palpable that you actually believed that Kirk might, for a moment, sacrifice the universe for this woman, but he didn't because he, was, he wanted to save lives. There was another question right over here. Hi, yes. Scott. My name is uh, Richard Barnett, and if you've watched the Chris Pine movies, the Admiral was named Richard Barnett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what you, when you guys were doing your inter checkout stuff about William Shatner, have you ever seen the original interview he did in, uh, in outside of studio before the show ever came on? I never did see that, no. Uh, well, because of my connections and everything, in Gene Roddenberry's office, there was a videotape that we got to see. He was outside the studio between shots, and people were interviewing him, and he compared himself, Kirk, to Captain Horatio Hornblower. Sure. So that's where some of that stuff came. And the other thing, too, was when you guys seen it, you were all kids. I was 19 when it came on. Wow. So I saw this completely different eyes than you guys have seen it. So most of the stuff you're talking about, I saw that the first time I was going. And I even went out and spent... $300 to buy a color TV so I could just watch the reruns. <laughs> well, that, that, was the, that was the plan, by the way. That was why uh, he, he, he bought a color TV to watch Star Trek. That was, there was advertising for Star Trek so people would buy color TVs. Yeah, that ad, right? I know what ad you're talking about. But that is why I got to say that watching Star Trek in high definition, man, does that show look amazing. Oh, it just looks beautiful. The primary colors, and you got to give it up. One of the unsung heroes, in addition to, well, not that the other four are unsung heroes, but one of the great unsung heroes of the original Star Trek is Jerry Finnerman, the cinematographer, for the first two and a half years. No other show has ever looked like the original series. Okay, who's got the next question right over here? What's your name? So, Wendell, Wendell Robson, and uh, I, uh, I'm a little bit older than you are, but... Um, I watched uh, Star Trek from the very, very beginning when it first came on. And here, I also identified as a, as a youngster with uh, James T. Kirk. And one of the things I admired about him was, was uh, and I too actually was a nerd, always straight A's in school and that sort of thing. But I was kind of afraid of, I was interested in girls, but a little bit afraid of them. Jim Kirk helped me get over that. Just from the fact that, you know, his, his uh, comfortableness with women and reaching out to them, and I was going to be like him, um, I also uh, boldly stepped into that area. See, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, Captain Kirk gave me the courage to, to, to talk to women. I mean, come on. I mean, and again, that line, trust me on this line, worlds may change, galaxies disintegrate, but a woman always remains a woman. It works. It does work. Okay, who's got the next question? Yes. Hi, what's your name? Steve, I just want to go back to shore leave and the way you were talking about how Kirk responds in his past as a nerd. I think when he had a chance to go and meet Finnegan again, we see who he turned into, not what he was, because he kicked his butt. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and enjoyed it. <laughs> that episode, shore leave, directed by Robert Sparr, that fight between Kirk and Finnegan was a five-minute fight scene. Now, in 1966, when that episode was filmed, television didn't have fight scenes like that. But that scene just kept going and going and going. And then, then it stops, then they talk, and then Finnegan throws dirt into Kirk's face, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. But the... the, the the moment in shore leave, and this, this proves our point that we are trying to make, uh, among many points that we're trying to make about Kirk being a nerd, about Kirk being bullied by Finnegan, and that he never stood up to Finnegan, and now was his chance. Granted, it was a, an amusement park planet, but when Kirk finally does beat the tar out of Finnegan, and he stands there, and he's hunched over, and his shirt, his tunic is ripped, and that look of that smile on his face, like up to that point in Star Trek, that was probably the happiest we have seen 
James Kirk because he finally got to beat the crap out of Finnegan. Who's got the next question? So, hi, my name's Grady. Um, so, uh, the first question is kind of about logistical. Um, do you intend to do the movies as well? And um, then, regardless of how you answer that, um, what's your head canon on a uh, con recognizing Chekhov? Um, because uh, I, I find that's an interesting way of people dealing with that. It's always fun. Um, and then, this is a brief aside that just occurred to me, which is um, it supports your thesis, the con does, because um, con's bred to be super smart, literally, and a military genius, but Kirk recognizes the um, flaw in his, uh, his two-dimensional thinking, um, and then they use it to brutalize him. Anyway, which is kind of interesting. All right, well, well, first of all, I mean, with regards to the Chekhov incident, so, I mean, that, uh, you know, Walter Kenning's been asked that question for almost 40 years now. <laughs> like, how does Khan recognize Chekhov? Well, just because we didn't see Chekhov in the lower decks doesn't mean he wasn't there. Okay, now keep in mind that for the first season of the original series, we only saw a few people. You know, we saw certainly Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Sulu. You know, we saw Stiles. We saw Tomlinson. We saw Angela Martine. Uh, actually, maybe we have seen quite a few people on the Enterprise. But there is a 428 people on the Enterprise. And Khan was there for a little bit. You know, just because we didn't see something happen doesn't mean it wasn't there. So you guys aren't going to like my answer to this question. I know, I know we've been taking every minute detail incredibly seriously. And sometimes I go, eh, that's how they wrote it. Hi, because, I'm Robert. Uh, because of your conclusions, so are you saying that the Kelvin Kirk is less wise than the prime Kirk? You know what, as much as I love those movies, even Into Darkness, I did not like the last 20 minutes of Star Trek Into Darkness, but I like the rest of it. And I think, to digress here, I think actually it's Star Trek Beyond is the movie of those three that felt the most like a Star Trek movie. I love the first one, it's a great movie, but Beyond is a great Star Trek movie. It felt like a throwback to the original series. But to answer your question, is Kelvin Kirk less wise than Prime Kirk? I, thought, I think Chris Pine did a great job with that role, but I am going to say, yes, he was less wise because, because for starters, he got in the chair too easily. Yep. He did not earn it. He didn't earn it. Prime Kirk earned the hell out of that chair. Because the Romulans messed up that alternate universe timeline that we see, the Kelvin timeline, Kirk has a lot of the qualities that Prime Kirk has, but he is less wise. The fact that in Star Trek Beyond, that, that he's not even done with the five-year mission, and he's already looking, he wants to get off the Enterprise. He's not happy being the captain of the Enterprise. If anything, Kelvin Kirk is more like the Captain Pike that we see in the cage. And what's interesting is that the Captain Pike that we saw in Star Trek Voyage, uh, Star Trek Discovery is more like William Shatner's Captain Kirk. Very, very interesting. But yes, I agree with you. And yes, I think that the Kelvin Kirk is not as wise because he didn't earn the center seat. Scott, how much more time do we have? We've got time for one more question. One Who's more got question. It? Who's got a great point, great question. What is your name? My name is Linda. In direct follow-up to that discussion, it always was um, uh, um, Mr. Greenwood's Captain Pike, after the bar fight, asked Kirk, how is it your only genius-level repeat offender? So how did Pike know that Kirk was of genius level? That's a great question. Steve, you got an answer to that? Yeah, because he followed him, because he was interested. I, I, that, that's how it's always seemed to me is that this is a person, he knew his father, he was worried about the kid, and so he looked into it, and he's powerful enough, smart enough, and well-connected enough that he could find out those answers. I, again, I mean, I, I think the, the, three, the three, you know, Kelvin movies, you know, they're, they're very uneven. Uh, I, th I think that, that Star Trek Beyond had a, a lot of things against its favor. It came out too late in the summer. They didn't show enough or early footage, that first teaser trailer that they showed 
during, I think it was uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens, was, was a terrible teaser trailer. And the fact is, Star Trek Beyond was a really, really good Star Trek movie. And it just made me want more. But regardless, uh, what, I, what I miss, what I miss more than anything is William Shatner as James T. Kirk. I miss him. I mean, I watch these episodes a million times, and, and because we are seeing, among so many other things and among so many other characters, we are seeing Kirk in a whole new light. I am getting to, I'm starting, I'm getting to know Captain Kirk all over again, and I like this guy even more. So for me, there's all sorts of great television. Right now, we're like in a golden age of television, a new golden age with all of these incredible shows. And Star Trek, for me, is fundamentally different. Star Trek, for me, is formative. It took me a long time to go like, oh, this actually is one of the most important influences in what I believe about right and wrong and what kind of person I want to be. And as a, a filmmaker, I've realized that, oh, Star Trek taught me how to tell stories. It's really important to me. And what's been so great about re-examining these shows with Scott is it's almost like returning to the mythology of your youth and discovering there was meaning there that you never considered before. That this show that's 55 years old, despite the fact that it formed me in all these ways, still has stuff to teach me. That's really cool. Could not have said it better myself. And Steve, wow, you're so, so, so right. You know, what are we, what are we, what are we talking about here? We're taking a 50-minute episode of Star Trek. That's including the ending credits. And we're talking, doing, doing our deep dives. And we, get, we do get deep. We get philosophical. We get into the filmmaking choices, writing choices, directorial choices, casting choices. We talk about the budgets how they go over or under. We talk about the contributions of all the people involved with Star Trek. But the other thing is, and it really just occurred to me after we have recorded a few episodes, look how much, look how much we are getting into a television show that was recorded, that was, that was produced 55 years ago. This is our Shakespeare. Star Trek is going to be analyzed. It is going to be dissected observed, rediscovered over and over and over again for generations, no pun intended, to the next generation. It is going to resonate deeper and in so many different ways as time goes on. And it is a testament to the producers and the writers and the actors and everyone involved with the making of that groundbreaking and trailblazing show that we are finding new things to really love about it and blow our minds. And we hope that you have enjoyed our deep dive dissection of James T. Kirk. And make sure that you head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Enterprise Incidents. You know, check us out. You can listen to the audio version on YouTube. We're also on Spotify. We're also on Google. We're on Google Podcasts, a couple other places. And make sure if you enjoyed our conversation on Enterprise Incidents, please tell other people about our podcast because we want this to be the final word on the greatest show of them all. So Scott and I are having such an incredible time going on the journey, and we really hope that you come on this journey with us because as much as we love talking to each other, which we do, <laughs> it's really great having these conversations with you and sharing it with all these people who love Star Trek as much as we do. And when you do, when you do start to listen to our podcast and you really get into it, you know, make sure you hit us up on our social media. You know, Facebook is Enterprise Incidents. I'm at Movie Mance on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you want to hear deep dives into great films, check out the Cinephiles, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. We just finished a three-part series on Die Hard. So that's the same thing. <laughs> same thing. Same thing. But until the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, keep going boldly. And thank you. Thank you.
Well, that sure was fun. And hopefully we'll get to do another live enterprise incidents in front of an audience sometime soon. In the meantime, I know you are all wondering when are Scott and Steve going to start their episode by episode deep dives of season two of Star Trek, which has great episodes like Mirror Mirror, The Doomsday Machine, A Mock Time, The Trouble with Tribbles? Well, the answer to that is next time on Enterprise Incidents, we begin season two with our deep dive of an episode that, well, it may not be one of the greatest episodes of all time, but it is a very special episode of Star Trek because it was filmed as a sort of holiday special for Halloween. And the timing is perfect because we are posting our deep dive of Cat's Ball on Halloween, Sunday, October 31st, 2021. Is it going to be a spooky Star Trek Halloween? Or is it going to be maybe not my favorite Star Trek Halloween? Well, you'll have to tune in to see next week. Okay, and while you're at it, make sure you listen, because we have a very big revelation that we figured out. That you figured out. (laughs) <laughs> that I figured out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> while re- re-watching Cat's Ball. And this is going to answer a question that people have been asking for about 40 years. So tune in, listen, and share Enterprise Incidents so you can join us for our deep dive beginning season two of Enterprise Incidents with Cat's Ball. And until next time, keep going boldly. Boldly.